Welcome back, Brew Theology listeners. This is Ryan Miller, and on today's episode of the Brew Theology Podcast, I gather with friends around the table drinking seed stock beer from the Mile High City, talking atonement theories. Atonement was coined by William Tyndale in the 16th century, and it essentially means at one, used to describe humanity and its reconciliation with God, looking back 2,000 years regarding what happened upon the Roman cross where Jesus of Nazareth was executed by the state upon a bloody cross. And for the last 2,000 years, theologians have been trying to figure out what actually happened to God, what happened to Christ, and what happened to the world when Jesus died. So there has never been one specific, one orthodox position in the entirety of the church. Not one uh, theory has all the answers. And so we're going to be bringing all these theories together, eight theories total, starting with the ransom theory, which was the most popular theory within the first 1,000 years of the church. We'll talk about the Eastern Orthodox position and their oneness theory. Then we'll move on to the satisfaction theory, where in the 11th century, St. Anselm brought together about God being satisfied. Uh, and then if you go four centuries later into the Reformation and John Calvin's followers, you get this penal substitutionary theory that is emerged from the satisfaction theory. They're all kind of connected in a way. But then you have the 12th century where you have Peter Abelard, who talks about this moral exemplar theory. And then you move to the Christus Victor theory of the 20th century that then takes this new theory, but it's not new because it goes back to the first 1,000 years dealing with the ransom theory. Last but not least, we're going to be talking about the solidarity theory that's popularized during the middle of the 20th century, along with the scapegoat theory that became popular probably within the last two decades by cultural anthropologist and literary critic Rene Girard. If you like this episode, man, this is going to be a fun one. Please share it on Twitter. We are brew underscore theology. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at brew theology. You can always check out the website, brewtheology.org, and figure out what it would look like for you to be a partner, a sponsor, even a contributor on a monthly basis. We would appreciate that. We also want to give a little shout out to Seedstock Brewing Company. Seedstock Brewing Company is a one of the, the 12 breweries, actually, that are going to be coming to Denver during August 18th and 19th for Theology Beer Camp. We are drinking seed stock tonight. I don't know what we're going to be drinking yet because I've recorded this before the episode. But Alex works for seed stock, and this is no conflict of interest, even though Alex is going to be on the podcast, even though Alex understands good beer. I call this the best kind of interest. When your friend who works at a brewery brings beer from that brewery and he's like, hey, I'm going to hang around for the conversation because Alex, if you don't know, was one of the first brew theologians. This topic, in fact, atonement theories, was one of the first topics that we ever tackled. It was Dan, Alex, and a few other guys hanging around the table back in the day, and now look at us, you know. It's kind of exciting. So uh, this topic has been on the shelf for a long time, and we're excited to air this one. And speaking of Alex and all things great, Alex is going to be joining us at the Wild Goose Festival, along with Liz and Janelle, coming up in July, July 13th through 16th. We're going to be in Hot Springs, North Carolina. We'll be camping, smoking cigars, drinking beer, talking about justice, beauty, doing some podcasting. And I just found out last week that I'm going to be one of the presenters. And so if you were at Wild Goose Festival, stop by the booth, stop by you know the campfire late at night, and we'll be talking some theology. And we would love to actually even have you on the podcast if you're there. All right, last but not least, this is definitely not least. This is very important, okay? I'm just going to say this right now. If you, if right now, if you want to start a chapter 
And this is something that you've been thinking about for a while because you've been listening to these episodes and you're like, man, what they do in Denver is amazing and it should be done across the nation. Guess what? I would agree with you. Right now, stop the podcast and email me, ryan at brewtheology.org and say, Ryan, what do I need to do to start this in my community? If you do that, you'll make my day. All right, guys. Peace. All right, guys. Welcome to Rob's Basement. Thanks, Rob, for the basement. Rob's not even here right now. Rob will join us in a little bit. We're going to do some introductions, talk about different atonement theories. So I'm Ryan. You guys know I grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical. Later in life, I started drifting a little bit left, and now I've got a big Jesus open tent. I'm an Anabaptist Method Jewcostal follower of Jesus who uh, flirts with other uh, various theologies, such as open and relational process theology and a little bit of liberation theology. But I'm a white privileged guy, so I really can't speak into that right now. We're talking. Hey, hey, I, you know, I feel bad sometimes. I feel a little bit guilty when I throw in the liberation thing. You know what I'm saying? So. Atonement theories, uh, we're going to start off with ransom theory because it was the first one in the early church. Been around uh, for a thousand, well, 2,000 years, the first thousand years, it was the main atonement theory. And this is where Satan has held creation, humanity, bondage, and captivity. And so because of the sin of Adam, uh, now Adam and Eve and everybody else is now enslaved to the evil one. And so then there's a ransom, there's a payment that has to be made. And so then. God comes in 2,000, well, how many years later? 6,000? 6,000 years? Well, we don't, we don't know. 6,000, 60,000 years later, and all of a sudden uh, has this plan. And it's the big sting, but Satan doesn't see it coming because Satan's holding all the cards. But then brings Jesus in uh, to pay this sacrifice. And then when the sacrifice is done, huh? you don't see it coming. Boom, Jesus rises from the grave, defeats death does all that, and then, ah, Satan's freaking out because he didn't just, you know, get his payment, but now the big guy has won. So uh, the cosmic forces of evil and darkness are defeated. Now humanity is now freed from the bondage of the devil. That was actually, that was the first theory, and people thought about what happened at the cross, uh, broke those chains. You can see this in C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia with Aslan and the Wicked Witch when, you know, Edmund, remember with like that, what does he have, those little treats and he he's sells Turkish delights. Turkish delights. So yeah, good. he sells out, you know, and uh, he's like, I want the sweeties. And sure enough, man, the whole whole humanity is enslaved to the white witch in the darkness. And Aslan's like, Hey, I'll sacrifice myself. And boom, chains are gone. Same thing. C.S. Lewis believed in this theory, but you go a little bit later, and then you have the Christus Victor theory, which is in the 20th century, and this is Gustav Allen. And so he reinterprets the ransom theory, uh, calls it Christus Victor, that Christ ultimately is defeating the cosmic powers of darkness and evil. And so this is less about the devil having like all the cards and the ownership. And this is more simply about like death and evil and darkness is swallowed up. So you see this in even Jesus when he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. So you, you have this ransom language right there from the Jesus man himself. And this Christus Victor theory is rooted in the, in, this is all incarnational. This is, now you see it in the flesh, on the soil, no more darkness, no more chains, no more, you know, evil. But then you go, wait, huh, there is evil. So we'll, we'll get there in a second and we'll critique this one. But those are the ransom theory, first theory, Christus Victor comes 
you know, a little bit later. And so then for me, I did not really grow up with these theories as a child, but in a way we kind of talked about Satan um, kind of being the prince of the world and then how now that we are in Christ, we have overcome Satan. So yes and no wasn't emphasized, but it was still there growing up as a kid. All right, who's next? That would be me. I'm Brian. I grew up uh, closeted gay, Protestant, conservative evangelical in the rural Midwest. And now I would consider myself more of an agnostic Christian type person. Um, I'm going to tell you about a couple of the atonement theories that I also did not grow up with. Oneness uh, was an Eastern version of thought from the Greek Orthodox Church. And um, really the same is solidarity. And that one uh, is much more recent, much like Christus Victor in the 20th century by Jürgen Moltmann and other uh, similar theologians that the good news of, of Christ is that he suffers with us in the midst of oppression, abuse, and horrific things, uh, many of which took place in the Western world in the 20th century. Cool. Uh, I'm Adam, and uh, I grew up like most of the other people here tonight, a uh, conservative Christian. Um, didn't really have any of these kind of atonement theories uh, laid out th this neatly uh, in, in the church that I grew up in. It was kind of uh, just that Jesus died for your sins, and now we get to go to heaven, and that was kind of the end of the story. We didn't really talk about any of these theories. Uh, so I'm going to talk about two that were pretty much kind of how, how my church approached it, although we, we did not um, have these exact names. Uh, one is the uh, satisfaction theory, and this was uh, from Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. Uh, he reinterpreted the cross in regard to the feudal system, and so he used this word satisfaction to describe God's honor being satisfied due to the cross. Um, in other words, you know, humans owe God obedience, uh, but we can't do it because we are uh, imperfect humans. And so Jesus pays, uh, you know, our debt uh, of that. Jesus and... paid it all, all <laughs> to him I owe. <laughs> Don't get me going on old school hymns because I'll join you. Um, so culturally speaking, uh, you know, for Anselm, culturally speaking, someone breaks a feudal contract and then the, the vassal pays satisfaction. So that's kind of one version of, uh, of a theory. And then kind of a related theory is the, the penal theory. And um, this was kind of some of the later reformers, uh, such as John Calvin. And um, so it's kind of related to this penal system. And you can kind of, uh, you know, draw some metaphors to the legal system. Um, which you think might work for me because I'm an attorney, but I, I pretty much reject all of this. Uh, so it's kind of God as, as a judge. Um, and, you know, there's this, you know, we're the, we're the people who have broken the law and God's, um, you know, judging our ultimate eternal fate, basically. But because we believe in Jesus, uh, we are then saved uh from from the wrath or from the judgment of god so those those two are kind of related and i'm sure we'll get into why uh i'm not necessarily in line with those anymore sweet 
Um, hey everybody, my name is Alex. Yeah, I grew up similar to these guys. I would say maybe a little bit more moderate on the evangelical side. If if that's a thing, I would have been a moderate evangelical. Um, and I've since kind of moved past to a little bit bigger tent, uh, progressive Christian. Just really like Jesus and how he thinks we should treat people. Um, atonement theories are uh, great things to talk about and frustrating things to talk about all in the same little basket. Um, so one of the theories we'll be talking about tonight is, uh, the moral theory, the moral exemplar theory. Um, so this is Peter Abelard, 12th century. Um, and it's kind of tailored to, uh, the humanist culture that was becoming more popular at this time. Um, and it's essentially, uh, Christ as a moral example, as exhibiting a way of acting that brings you closer to God. That is, uh, in, in keeping with the moral way of the day. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to explain the moral satisfaction, not moral satisfaction, the moral atonement theory. My name is Dan. I grew up in a fairly conservative evangelical Christian household, mostly in a charismatic um, context. And I kind of grew up like some people have said here with a mix of a, a few of these mostly probably the penal and the satisfaction. Um, but this last one that we're going to talk about is the theory of atonement, you could say, of, of the scapegoat mechanism. That was fleshed out by Rene Girard, who is a philosopher, anthropologist, um, and he kind of takes this view that um, society's kind of built on what he calls mimetic desire, and specifically that leading to violence. And how um, the death of Jesus Christ, the historical person, reveals the system. And once Christianity is formed, it's through the lives of of these early Christians, and I guess even now today, potentially, it's debatable. Um, the whole system is kind of exposed, and it loses its power. Because the, the power of the scapegoat mechanism is the fact that it's unconscious. So, yep, Mr. René Girard passed away in 2015 at 91 years old. So he's probably the uh, most recent of the people that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Okay. So before we dive into these and critique them, talk about our upbringing and maybe get a little bit of counseling along the way. <laughs> this hey. is, sometimes these turn into therapy fast. Wow. <laughs> what, what are we drinking tonight? I've already talked about Alex brought the seed stock. Alex works at seed stock. Bring it, Alex. What, what are we drinking tonight? Yeah, so we have uh, four good ones. <clears throat> um, we have a Seedstock 14, which is a really malty amber. It's a fat tire, done a lot better, a little bit lower on the hop scale and a little bit higher on the malt um, and mouthfeel. Uh, it's delicious. Then we have a, an IPA. It's a no-coast IPA, so Ryan is not going to like it as much. Uh, but it's got a great hop uh floral in the nose so it hits you in the nose like a normal ipa would but then it's not going to punch you in the throat like those west coast ipas do alex and i've known <laughs> each other a while i started off as a west coast danky piney guy still like them but no, no need to worry seat stock i love the floral stuff <laughs> no, now no well no, the, new, the new england style it's been like hip the past year i didn't even know it was cool until i googled it and i go I, my palate's changed just like the rest yeah. of the country yeah I'm, I'm a nose guy for sure Dan's a nose guy. The throat kick is just too much for me. Yeah. Sorry, Trevor. A little bit juicier hot bomb. I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It's it's a great introduction to an IPA if you're going to go for that. 
next we have the vanilla espresso stout. It's a 4.9 um, ABV, and it is as good as it so sounds. So like drinking two of those is like drinking one. Yeah, sure. Unless you're talking to your doctor. Sure. And then it's, yeah, then it's two. That explains why my heart is confused right now. <laughs> <laughs> my heart rate, I mean. Um, yeah. So uh, it's just a great stout. Um, I have not met anybody that doesn't like it, even people who don't like stouts. Um, goes really well with breakfast if you're into morning drinking because it tastes like breakfast drinks. <clears throat> um, next one we have is an extra special one. It's a limited release. It's a Lichtenheiner. So this is a traditional... That, sound, uh, that sounds dirty. Yeah, sure. It is kind of a dirty beer. Um, it's a traditional Central European beer. Uh, it's a smoked sour beer. Um, so you have your traditional tarty sour beer, and then the grain that was used was smoked before it went into the mash. Um, it has, it's a really well-done Lichtenheiner, um, but a lot of people aren't familiar with the sour beer the smoked sour beer. So it's, it might be a little different up, up front, but it is very well done. Right, I got to have yeah. that next for sure. Yeah. So Alex also paired these up with different theories and he put them on the can right here. I so, did. Yeah. So the vanilla espresso stout pairs really well with uh, the solidarity theory. Solidarity would be the Jurgen Moltmann 20th century Holocaust. Yeah. And I'm going to say, since I'm drinking that espresso, vanilla espresso one, and I really did kind of like the solidarity theory. I'm I'm saying they definitely go together. Sweet, that's yeah. good. the uh, The IPA is the Christus Victor theory. I think that pairs the best. The seed stock fourteen uh, pairs well with the oneness theory. And then that that big old Lichten, Lichtenheiner is uh, a great addition with the penal substitutionary theory. And not so, and, uh, you know if if you're like hearing this for the first time and you're hearing we're not saying penile, we're saying no. penal. But like at the, the end of this system. conversation, you might think that some would actually make those synonymous terms. Well, we, and, yeah. And that beer, it seems like it might be like if Seedstock was the first brewery you ever went to, like first craft brewery or whatever, you'd, that's like your intro, right? The, uh, the Seedstock 14? Yeah. Yeah. Um, See, just like uh, Penal Substitutionary Tome is kind of like your intro into Christianity. And then you realize that it's kind of garbage. <laughs> I would say that's more complicated, but the Lichtenheiner is not garbage. So no beer really pairs well, in my opinion, with the penal substitutionary. (laughs) But uh, that that was the one I chose for that. There's like smoke and fire, and it's just not as uh, fluffy and loving as some of the others may be. So do you guys want to (laughs) do you want to start with the penal substitutionary theory? Because it seems as if we all grew up in that. We all grew up very conservative evangelical homes, and this was the dominant theory, and it still is the dominant. The dominant theory, not just in evangelical homes, but I would say mainline, even in hymns that you sing, whether you're UMC or you're PCUSA, you're still singing these songs. And then like as a child, you grew up thinking, well, yeah, Jesus paid it all. God's wrath is appeased. So the the judge, right? God's this judge. And suddenly the judge takes off the judge clothes and goes down and in your place, takes your sentence. Did you guys hear all that growing up? Was that normal images? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, and I also get what? the sense, and I don't know this is true, that that's what people who aren't Christian or haven't, aren't even in Christian societies think that Christianity is about too. I don't know if that's true, but. It's Jesus, definitely yeah. the, the main theory that we export to other countries. Yeah, right. Like yeah. Missionaries. Anyway. Yeah. So here, here's a confession that, so when I was right out of seminary, 
is a youth pastor, I had to do the VBS. Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School. And they wanted me to do every message at the end of the day. And they wanted me to lead every message up to the final day where, of course, I would have five-year-olds, which is my daughter's almost five. Did they nail their sins on the cross? All the way up till 10. No, no. I did that with my high schoolers, though. So... (laughs) And uh, they wanted me to do the the presentation. So what was a presentation? Obviously, it was a penal substitution. But here's, this is the confessional piece, is that I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm with kids. How do I make this cute? I really didn't even want to do this, but I felt like guilted into it. And so I brought my dog, uh, God rest her soul, Maggie. And she was my, she's no for real. So Maggie's my sidekick. And I was talking about my sidekick every, every day. And the kids kind of knew that the fluffy dog was coming because I put enough hints in there. So there, last day, man, I bring Maggie up, this little miniature wiener dog, 10 pounds. And like, oh, she's so cute. Had kids come up and pet her. And then I was like, this is an innocent, this is an innocent no. dog, right? For real, I did. You know it's coming. <laughs> innocent dog, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at kids my daughter's age, basically. And I said, what would happen if, uh, you know, this dog was, was killed? No, no, no. All the kids are crying. Like, really well, crying? That's what, I mean, dude, it's, a pu- it's, it's like a little puppy. It's no, a I'm miniature just making dog. sure. I, I feel like These it are, totally would happen, but I'm just like... Yeah, yeah and I, I, like, I still feel a little guilty, but that's, this is my confession to the, are you paying in, the, for their the therapy? internet world. <laughs> <laughs> what? Are you paying for their therapy? No, I guess I have to. Oh, <laughs> uh, So, the, yeah, that was... Yeah, you, you guys know what's coming next. So, that's messed uh, up, man. I, so I got, these kids, the I got these kids to say a prayer based on my little fluffy dog, and, and which is kind of crazy that the dog is equated to Jesus anyway, because that really doesn't even make sense. But you didn't Except actually kill the dog, did you? I didn't kill the dog. Okay, dog, come on. Dogs, <laughs> dogs, lambs. Yeah. Yeah. You, got, you got the point across. It is, but, so, but back to dancing in high school, being a youth pastor. Dude, we, we nailed hearts, little felt red hearts on the cross, like, dude, at least three times a year. <laughs> at least. Winter retreat, summer retreat, fall, all those things. It's what we were paid to do. <laughs> was your job. <laughs> yeah. But so then I've had people who said there are, there are other theories. Like, yeah, there are other theories. But most people in the church, they only know satisfaction in the penal substitutionary theory. So like for you guys, what, why, why does this seem outlandish? Because it seems, seems as if nobody here buys into that anymore. <clears throat> so I think... Um... When you talk about atonement theories in general, you're you, you're fundamentally talking about the the nature of God, and for me, the penal substitutionary theory paints a really awful picture. Like, what kind of God would would have some arbitrary rule that you need to follow or um, order to the world that you can't, by any stretch of the imagination, live up to, and then kill his own son? that somehow absolves the rest of us, but his son is still brutally murdered. Like that, when you think about it, looking at it through a nature of God lens, it's a really messed up, like, deity that may have fit, like, the worldview at the time or some other, um, you know, maybe more pluralistic worldviews that people were working with at the time, but it really is not, at least philosophically, the type of God that philosophers have posited would exist. Right. Yeah, I mean, Adam, like you had said in the intro to this one, John Calvin, a lawyer, uh, the litigious society, uh, the the courts, everything was in place for this theory to emerge as a popular one. And still today, America, the Western world, very much, you broke the law. That's what we tell people. 
well, have you sinned? Have you broken the law? Right. Like, and then we create this whole gospel narrative out of that because it's all black and white. But as a lawyer, you don't right. like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, I don't even think the metaphor really holds up if you like analyze it long enough. It's, it's like, uh, okay, so the, wait, there's the, there's the judge that's God, but Jesus is my advocate, but also God is the, the advocate and he like comes in and takes my place. Uh, and so wh- that doesn't even make sense in, in the first place because in order for penal substitutionary atonement theory to work, um, and one of the things that I've never really understood about it is that it, it's not very clear how that theory aligns with um, your belief about Christology or how much God was or was not in Jesus. Um, so it, it sort of breaks down on, on that as well and just becomes a, you know, it, it becomes an easy thing to sell to high schoolers, like, like your example. Um, and, but you know, once you really, once you really analyze it, it, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. For me, it's, it's far too transactional. Yes. Right. Like Jesus took your place and it was a huge sacrifice sacrifice except in the end everything's okay right because he resurrects and he goes back to the father so how much of a sacrifice was it really well that's the that sorry sorry to interrupt it so that was that's the whole thing with it is like well okay for that metaphor to work who's going to jail in this scenario i mean jesus automatically gets out of gets the get out of jail free card and so it's like well yeah he had to go through, through something really crappy for that but if we, if we are not in Jesus under this theory, then we go to eternity for hell. So why doesn't Jesus have to do that? Well, he did. He went to Hades and stole the keys and stuff. And... Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 is, there is a theory based on that one scripture. That, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's some good ones out there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Finish funny, like, thought, like, though, like what you were saying, though. I mean, I remember hearing Tony Jones, a theologian, say, he's saying that like, if God is all powerful in this conventional sense and can do anything that God wants to do, why not just this time around for saving people, a bunch of butterflies, just throw them, throw the butterflies out into the atmosphere and make that the, the saving grace. Why go through this cosmic child abuse, torturous, punitive father figure and this son who just takes it. Yeah. He's you know, got a point. If God can do anything, God can do according to that, the classical sense. Yeah. And that's the most bothersome part about the whole thing is, it's not so much the Jesus part that most people might be comfortable with. I don't know, like, you know, a friend, you know, sticking their neck out for you or whatever. It's the father piece and the fact that it's, you know, framed around this cosmic child abuse, like you said. Yeah. So uh, theologian Sharon Baker, she says this, lurking behind these theories is a ghost of a punitive father haunting the image of forgiving grace, a cruel father who demands the blood of an innocent person in retribution for sin, finding death of his own son an agreeable way to save the world. Yeah, agreeable. So do we, I mean, how, how about this? Like, we want to dismiss this and move on, but for, for a lot of people, this is still an important part of their faith. I'd hate to just discredit it and dismiss it just because personally I moved on and you guys have too. I don't want to ever think, oh, I'm better than that theory now because this theory made sense and still makes sense for some people to have some kind of a faith. Um, I was just going to say, I'd like to hear if anybody here has a good justification for why, even if you don't believe it, but why people do yeah. believe it, because I, I, I've not heard a good justification for it. 
I mean, I don't know if I have a good justification, but the way that it looks to me, I think it represents a popular mindset of the way, uh, maybe a worldview in general in the United States right now, and maybe for most of its history, I don't know. But I mean, it's a simple, it's a simple kind of transactional thing where if you follow, if you follow these simple steps and believe these relatively simple things that Jesus did this for us, so now we're fine. Um, it's just kind of clear and it kind of lends itself to a black and white way of thinking. And for people who are privileged, maybe it's kind of a crazy track to go down, but you know, they don't have things that make them question that kind of simple. I followed the rules and I'm okay. Kind of thing. And if, if other people are having trouble, it's their own fault. And it sounds like I'm getting off track a little bit, but I also think, you know, it's an easier way to be in a religion than say some of these other theories, even just in atonement theories, like the oneness or the maybe even the solidarity one where you have to kind of get into this murky gray spiritual kind of woo woo to certain people mindset to even think about relating to God in a way that's way more spiritual than it is, I guess, transactional or sort of visible in a in the way that our society is set up in the West or in the U.S. anyway. Yeah, and to kind of expand what, on, on what Brian said, I think there's also a biblical basis for it. Um, what, what a lot of people fail to realize— I got the scriptures right here, Dan, if you want to read them. Uh, you want to read one? I don't want to read them all. But, I mean, yeah, yeah there's, just, there's a lot of scriptures. Just uh, just read one from the gospel. You know what? People love Paul, so do do give me a Pauline right, you, one. You keep talking. I'm going to look up Romans 3.32, unless somebody okay. has that memorized as a good Christian. <laughs> well, right, you up. know, I, what I was going to say was that a lot of people fail to realize that in the Bible you have— a multiplicity of views and, and different ways, depending on what kind of point you were trying to get across. You know, the, a lot of Paul's letters are addressed to specific communities that have, they're in a specific context and might be col- culturally completely different. And it would make sense to speak of um, the power of Christ in different ways. And um, maybe for certain communities, this substitutionary, I don't know about the penal part, but that substitutionary um, view made sense for, for people at that time. And it, I think it still does today. All right. You ready for it? But now this isn't Paul's words to the Romans in chapter three, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by the by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So then he continues to talk about you know, is there boasting and this and that? But there's there are uh, there are a lot of. I mean, if it weren't for the Apostle Paul in taking things in, um, I don't want to say out of context because this could be in context for some, but definitely um, just taking specific verses and dropping them down. Well, I mean, that's, proof texting. Uh, he's a good Jew. He's yeah. he's doing a, a midrash, right? Right. And he's speaking of Romans who may or may not know Jewish scripture. But they might know certain things, and he's you know presenting them a certain view. And uh, 
yeah, I don't want to get an exegesis, but I think yeah. I think at some point we have to admit, like, we can't just say, well, you know, if you look at the original Greek, it actually mean, you know, I think it's a lot better, especially now in this pluralistic society, to just say, this is one view that's in the Bible, and that's okay, and that's why we have Christians who view view this and or have this view and find it helpful. And I also think, I mean, in terms of looking for reasons that it, it might work, um, it does make a lot of sense from the standpoint of, you know, well, what, what happens to my sin? I mean, how am I absolved of that? Because I don't, I don't know that some of these other theories address the original sin issue quite as cleanly as, as that does. But in order for that to be the case, then you have to believe in original sin. So, um, so, and, and then the other reason I think it's important to like spend so much time on it like we are is, I mean, I attend a ultra progressive uh, Christian church. And I would say that probably if you, if you pulled everyone at that church, they would still say some form of the penal substitutionary atonement, even though none of the, you know, none of the pastors or leaders would subscribe to, to that theory. It's just not something that, that we talk about very often because, you know, it, it is damaging for people. So, you know, we could probably do a better job of, um, not necessarily laying out other theories, but just, uh, in in like a theological way, but just more um, providing a broader spectrum of of views for people to grasp onto. I mean, we we have to figure out a way f- to to give people something that that it, that they can remember and something that they can kind of hold with them that's different than substitutionary atonement. Right. We still have to deal with the fact that we have a bloody first century Jewish carpenter rabbi from Nazareth, an insurrectionist on a cross. And this cross in the entirety of the New Testament is like the pivotal, we boast in the cross. That's what the Christian faith is. We boast, people wear the cross around their neck. For whatever reason, this this symbol is still critical. So we can't, it's funny, like we want to be able to like, oh, let's just, some, even liberal theologians and Christians want to just dismiss the whole thing. Like, no, it still happened. And there is this historical thread that you can follow from the Old Testament on so what do we do with that? You know, what's interesting is that in the Protestant church, um, we've even sanitized the cross, right? Um, the Catholic church and the Orthodox church, you see a crucifix, which is a dead body on the cross. And you go to any Protestant church and you rarely see Jesus' bloodied body on it. On. And I think, I can't help but, but to think, I mean, this is kind of a side thing, but the art and the, that symbolic expression kind of reflects the theology as well. Yeah, you even have in a lot of Protestant churches, people jumping past Lent, past Holy Week, straight to Easter, not even messing with Good Friday. And if you do, it's like, oh, I got to go to Good Friday. I just want to get my Easter dress on. And you know, me specifically, I like to wear the Easter dress. No, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like the flowers and the tulips in the empty tomb. But uh, I had a Catholic priest tell me once you protestants like you guys want to jump jump straight to easter but you gotta you gotta go through holy week you gotta do the crucifixion 
And I ended up buying a crucifix and I carried it around every Lenten season for like a decade. And I know it was people jumping my, in my, it was my truck. I had a truck back at the time in Texas. And they'd jump in my front seat and they'd see a bloody Jesus crucifix. And they're like, what in the world? And I go, oh, there's a story behind that. I met this Catholic priest and here's what he told me. So we still have to deal with it. Yeah, a lot of times the, the way I grew up, people would say, well, Jesus doesn't look like that anymore. He's in his glorified body. But never mind the fact that in some of the gospels, he shows up to his uh, disciples and he's like, touch my wounds. The scars are still there. But uh, yeah, so one of the things with, with blood that, that for me was really enlightening when I started studying more of like Hebraic, rabbinical, Jewish way of seeing scripture, looking, hey, Jesus' Bible was the Torah and the entirety of the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. Every year, Jesus had to go to the temple at least three times for these pilgrimages. Every Jew did. And so, I mean, they're like, they're cutting animals' throats at the altar. If you read Leviticus, which at some point we've all had to like, uh, go through that. I used to read that at night and put Lauren to sleep and she's like, that's disgusting. She can only imagine flies buzzing around the altar. I mean, this is a lot of blood, a lot of dipping in, but the word atonement, and it comes from Leviticus 16 and it means kafar, which is to cover. So it's this covering, it's a sprinkling, it's this purifying. But I was told that Jews didn't sacrifice animals to get atonement. It was to remember the atonement, to remember the mercy, to remember the sacrifice. So ultimately, like God's always got your back. God's always like the freedom, the salvation of the Jews isn't so much about like, you have to do this to be saved. Got to, got to kill the goat, got to kill the lamb. Like, no, no, no. It's a reminder that God's always doing this and there's always mercy. And there's like, that was so liberating for me. So how do I then reinterpret what Christ did in that light versus the narrative that I was told? Because my whole, I don't know about you guys, I was always told the Jews had to sacrifice in order to be saved. Like, no, that, yeah. that's actually kind of bullshit. Yeah. You talk to a rabbi, even today, like a relative of mine asked me, well, what, what do the Jews do for salvation now? They don't have a temple. And I go, but that's the thing. Like, they've always evolved and it was never about the yeah. sacrifices. Not to take that away from them. That was, that's always been important, but it wasn't about salvation. But even then, Ryan, like, you know, Let's just focus on the Old Testament some more because um, at the end of the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, you know, the further you go along in Jewish history, uh, the prophets start calling out the sacrificial system. Uh, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And they, I mean, it's in our Bibles, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's like a very memorable thing that people quote. And yet we demand that Jesus, you know, was a sacrifice for us. And so it's like, well, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. And, 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 you know, a lot of the, the sacrificial stuff, um, for the Jews became, um, you know, more ritualistic and it became very political. And, um, so the prophets were calling that out and they're like, this doesn't, this is not working for us. So I think, I think whenever we talk about uh, the crucifixion in terms of correlating it with, you know, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, that we have to keep that in mind. And it's something that we don't talk about very often. And if, if what Ryan said is true about the, the sacrifice not being a means of, of atonement, but as a remembrance, I think the, the prophet's biggest beef was that this remembrance had been politicized to oppress 
rather than maybe its original function of liberating people of like, look what God has done in our ancestors, in our lives. Yeah. And even if you look at atonement, I mean, Jesus, if he dies on Passover and then you have people say, no, the Passover lamb, like that whole season, you know, it's all, it's, but dude, when, so when is the day of atonement in the liturgical calendar of the Jews? Do y'all know? It's in the fall. Yom Kippur. Right after Rosh Hashanah, you have the 10 days of awe leading up to the Day of Atonement. That's when you have Leviticus 16, and that's when you have the two goats in the lane of the hands of one, the scapegoat that gets thrown off and all. But like, well, he didn't even die in the fall. He died, evidently, he died in the spring. And so you have John who goes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And like, well, that wouldn't have made sense to a Jew because it's not the lamb, it's the goat. The goat of God, right? The greatest of all time. It's always fun when you press record and your conversation continues even further than you anticipated. That's what happened tonight. We're going to continue this conversation in part two of Atonement Theories. If you like part one, share it on Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. We'll see you next week. Peace. <laughs>